Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSilicast Podcast, hosted at podfeet.com. Technology Geek Podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, June 12, 2022, and this is show number 892. Before we get started with the usual NoSilicast content, I wanted to tell you about a terrific daily tech news show special that was just released. It's a solar panel roundtable hosted by Tom Merritt and Sarah Lane. They had as guests on their panel, Joe Briney, Brian Hoffman, and none other than our very own Steve Sheridan. Tom and Sarah asked the panel about the costs and considerations that someone needs to consider before they take the plunge into solar and to share their experience and expertise with installing solar panels and how much of a difference it's actually made. Now, of course, I'm biased, but I thought this episode was awesome. When Steve was done with the panel, he was on a huge high because he had such a blast doing it. But he was also very enthusiastic about getting hold of Brian Hoffman via email to ask him a whole lot more questions about his solar setup. You see, Brian didn't pay someone to install his solar systems. He built them himself. His story is so extraordinary that next week's Chit Chat Across the Pond will be Steve and I interviewing Brian about his farm, his trees, his tilapia, and how solar ties all of this together. But first, head on over to DailyTechNewsShow.com to hear the solar panel, or better yet, subscribe to the Daily Tech News Show in your podcatcher of choice. By the way, this special was released way earlier just for DTNS patrons. So if you dig DTNS, become a patron like me. Speaking of chit-chat across the pond, this week our guest is Bart Bouchatz, and it's something entirely different. We did an Ask Me Anything about security. I sent out the request for questions to our Slack community, to Twitter, to a few user groups of which I'm a member, and Steve posted it to our Facebook group. With the exception of one question, which I sent to Bart ahead of time, Bart answered all of these questions on the fly while we were recording. For that reason, only the questions are available. In order to know his answers, you're going to have to listen to the show. It was a fantastic episode. I had a lot of fun, and I learned a lot. The episode is number 732 of Chit Chat Across the Pond, and it's in the Chit Chat Across the Pond light feed, and of course, the overarching Chit Chat Across the Pond feed, which you can find where? In your podcatcher of choice. I got a thank you note from a relative of mine recently for a blanket I knitted for her new baby. It was the first time I'd seen her beautiful handwriting, and my first thought was, I'd like a font like that. That got me to wondering whether there might be services that would allow you to make a font out of your handwriting. I was delighted to discover that they do indeed exist, and I've had great fun this week with one of the services called Calligrapher at calligrapher.com, and it's spelled like calligrapher except missing the E before the ending R. This idea wasn't one into which I was planning on investing my hard-earned money, but as Bart has taught us, it's a good idea to understand the business plan of any service you employ. Calligrapher has a freemium business plan, meaning you can get a free account and have a lot of fun, but if you start wanting to make lots of fonts and get extra features, you'll need to upgrade to the paid plan, and I'll talk towards the end about some of the things you get with the paid plan. To create a font of your own, you download a template file for the language of your choosing. They have English, German, French, Spanish, and they say Japanese. The template you download is like a little kid's primer to teach them how to write their letters. You have squares with each of the letters in alphabetical order in uppercase and then lowercase, along with a few punctuation marks. You can choose to have the squares blank with a little guide letter above each one telling you what you're supposed to write, or you can have them print the letters very faintly where you're supposed to write them. I went with that second option. After downloading the template, you print it out and then handwrite over each letter in your own handwriting. There are little guidelines inside the squares, just like the ones for little kids learning the alphabet. 
I sort of paid attention to those guidelines, but maybe not as much as I probably should have, and I'll explain why in a minute. After you're finished writing this like someone in grade two, you scan the paper back in and upload it to Calligrapher. The paper has four little markers on the corners that need to be included as a reference. After you upload and save your letters with a name, the next step is to build your font. At this point, you can see the characters as they will look when you get, when you get to use them. Evidently, in font speak, the characters in a font are called glyphs. And I'll try to remember to call them that from now on, but I might call them characters from time to time. Now, for some reason, the scan upload process sometimes creates little dots and small lines, kind of like a noise from the scan. If you select one of your glyphs, you're given the opportunity to clean things up in a little graphic editor window. I use the eraser a lot to remove the bits of noise, but you can also use one of the six brushes to smooth things out or add to the glyphs to make them more to your liking. There's nothing like looking at your handwriting zoomed up to this level to make you realize how truly awful your handwriting is. Now, the one tricky bit of the interface is that the eraser looks like a trash can, and it's also a toggle. So if the trash can is highlighted, then all of the brush options you see are erasers. If the trash can is not highlighted, then all of the brush shapes are actually brushes. The interface for editing your letters is very easy and intuitive. It was time-consuming, but it was not difficult. The time it takes you to clean up your glyphs is all a function of how long you want to spend time cleaning them up. When you've completed cleaning up your glyphs, the next step is to build your font again. Process only takes a few seconds, and then you'll see your fancy new font used in some random text that appears to be a mix of Moby Dick and Alice in Wonderland. At least that's what I think it is, because it has Ahab and Alice in it. Now, if you're satisfied, or at least impatient, it's time to download your font. You won't see a download button, which is a little confusing. Instead, you'll see two links for two different font download options, .ttf and .otf. Make Use Of has a great explanation of the two formats. TTF stands for True Type Fonts, and OTF stands for Open Type Font. I didn't really understand the implications of the two options very well, but OTF is the new hotness, and they use the word glyph with it, so that's probably the one we want. I tested both, and they looked identical to me, but newer has to be better, right? Now, installing downloaded fonts is super easy on the Mac. Simply double-click on the font file, and it will automatically launch an app called FontBook. If you're not familiar with FontBook, it's buried inside your Applications Utilities folder. FontBook will offer to install the font, and you're done. As soon as I had the highly coveted Allison Sheridan font installed, I popped open TextEdit, changed to the Allison Sheridan font, and started to type. I have to say that it is seriously freaky to type and yet see your own handwriting spitting out on screen. After I got over the shock of how easily I was able to make a font for my own handwriting, I started to look more closely at it. I noticed that some of my letters seemed kind of sunken down a bit while others were somewhat higher. Now, remember I said there were guidelines that I should have paid more attention to? I was going to start over and be more careful with my lettering, but I was worried that I'd be too careful and it wouldn't accurately reflect my sloppy jalopy handwriting. Then I discovered that you could do more than edit the character. You can adjust what they call the baseline and size of your character, or glyph we should be calling it. To get to these options, first select your font from My Fonts, then you'll see each of your glyphs with an option to delete them individually for a do-over. If you select one of the glyphs, you'll see the alphabet on the left sidebar, and you can select a specific letter. At this point, you'll have options to get back into the pixel editor where we were before, but you'll also see the option to adjust the baseline and size. 
The two functions you're going to perform in this tool are to raise and lower each glyph till it lands on the bottom guideline, and then to increase or decrease its relative size compared to the other glyphs you've created. They give you little buttons to move and adjust the glyphs by just 1% or bigger steps of 5%, or you can use keyboard shortcuts to do the same thing. Now, while you're adjusting a particular glyph, such as, let's say, the capital A, it might be helpful to see what it looks like next to different characters. It's hardly ever next to a capital B, so you can use the right-left arrow keys to compare to any of the other glyphs you've imported. You can even shuffle it so you see all different letters. When you're done editing one glyph for size and baseline, you can simply select another one and keep editing. As you can imagine, this is an iterative process. That lowercase g looks too small next to the c, so let's embiggen the g, but wait, now the h looks too big compared to the c. So just like editing at the pixel level for your glyphs, you can spend as much time changing the baseline and size as you have to spend. When you've run out of time, don't forget to tap Save Adjustments to retain your hard work. Once you've spent quality time editing at the pixel level, moving your glyphs up and down, and resizing them, you're ready to rebuild your font. You'll be delighted to see how much better it looks with the glyphs aligned and sized. But you'll probably notice that when written into words and sentences, the spacing between your letters and words isn't quite right. In fact, my fonts were, my letters I should say, were way too far apart in the words. I then discovered yet another tool called Edit Font Details. Luckily, this tool is pretty simple. You get a slider to change the letter spacing, font size, and word spacing. It's a little bit iterative because you change the spacing and build the font, change the spacing, build the font, rinse and repeat until it looks good to you. Now, I set my font size to 120%, my letter spacing to 85%, and I left the word spacing at 100%. It looked a lot better, especially the, the alignment of the characters. The words were a bit too close together, so I went in to adjust that, and it didn't give me a percentage. For some reason, that slider doesn't, but I slid it some anyway. And then something odd happened. I got all X's for the preview of my font. I couldn't figure out how to fix it, so I logged out and back in, and my font was back. I ended up dragging the character spacing to 50%, and it looks just about perfect now. I did still have the X's, or I should say the X's came back, instead of my font showing in that web tool again, but I exported it anyway, and it was just fine. So evidently, that's just a little bug in the tool. I do have to say, Calligrapher is addictive. I had a great-looking font in my handwriting, and I could have stopped. But then I started thinking, wow, it'd be cool to have numbers in addition to letters. When I downloaded the original template, it was just the letters and those few special characters I mentioned. I discovered that they have way more templates than I set up front. They've got mathematical symbols, currencies, Latin, Cyrillic, and Greek, to name a few. One of the templates was called Minimal Numbers. When I selected the Minimal Numbers template, I was alerted to the fact that I was about to run into my first limitation of the free account. You see, free accounts can have up to 75 glyphs, but the addition of the Minimal Numbers set, which includes some other characters like plus, minus, and ampersand, that adds up to 79. If you download the template and just fill in the essential glyphs, I was able to do all the numbers plus a couple of more characters, and then you scan it in, you can click the trash can on the ones you don't need, and then you can import the new glyphs and stay under that 79 limit. I'm sorry, under that 75 glyph limit. After my 10th iteration on my font, I happened to start reading the FAQs, which are really like a user manual, and I discovered that you get much cleaner scans if you scan in color or grayscale rather than monochrome. Remember that noise, those little bits of noise I said I had to clean up? I had scanned in black and white, and they say grayscale or color would be better. 
Well, I was finally ready to start using my fancy new handwriting font. I realized pretty quickly that this will be primarily for my own entertainment. For example, I changed my handwriting font in Apple Mail, started a new email, and I squealed with delight. But then I realized that the email I just received from Steve, or from Steve, was also in my own handwriting. Boy, was that weird. Well, I'm sure you've all realized it, but I was kind of slow in the uptake. My emails won't be received in my font. They'll be received in whatever font the person on the other end has chosen. Again, very weird to see Steve writing to me in my handwriting. I do have a very important use for my new font. I like to write handwritten letters to people. Often they're thank you notes, but sometimes they're just letters of encouragement if a friend is feeling blue. Because we never write paper mail to people, these handwritten notes often have a big impact because they're so unusual. My mother-in-law in particular really appreciates them. The main problem to be solved is that I write by hand so infrequently, though, that my hand cramps up after just a few lines. I'm also so out of shape at writing by hand that sometimes my hand just sort of flails and I'll get as many as four humps on an M. And remember typos, if you, I don't know what else to call them, writos? Anyway, those still happen when you write by hand. What do you do? Do you scratch it out? Do you try to write over it? Start the whole letter over again? Well, there's also the problem of reading something over that you've written and realizing, man, you didn't really say it the way you wanted. Basically, these are all the reasons we type instead of writing by hand. My solution up until now has been to use Apple Pencil on the iPad Pro in the app Notability to handwrite my notes, and then I print them out. The advantage of writing in Notability is that I can have lined paper, if you will, while I'm writing so my writing doesn't slide down to the right like a psycho, but then I can turn the lines off when it's time to print. I can also use the lasso to grab a set of lines and move them down to add a thought or erase, uh, maybe erase a single four-humped M. It's been a pretty good solution, but my hand does still get cramped. But now, with my fancy pants, much-coveted Allison Sheridan font, I can type out my letters of encouragement, maybe choose blue for the color and print it out on my pretty stationery, and it will look handwritten. Only my mother-in-law will figure out what I've done because she has saved my letters and she will surely notice that my letters are oddly consistent when my true handwriting is all wibbly-wobbly. There's another use for it that I'm testing out. I wrote an article entitled Write by Hand When You Need to Think in which I explained that using plain old paper and a pencil can be a way better way to just kind of barf your ideas out rather than trying to do it while typing. I definitely use this technique when I'm coding, but rather than paper and a pencil, I use iPad with pencil and my friend Notability. But, and, and that does work, and I'm definitely going to keep doing it that way when I really need to think. But sometimes I think of something when I'm sitting at my Mac, and I just want to jot it down really quick, and it's about a development project. I'll open Notability on the Mac, and I'll type in my thought. These typewritten sections are jarring when I go back to look them at them on my iPad, and for some reason they're, they're just harder for me to scan through when I'm looking for an idea that I remember writing down. I'm hoping I can now have the best of both worlds by typing in my own handwriting when I do let myself write from a keyboard. I'm going to have to resist doing this often, though, because it absolutely violates the write-by-hand-when-you-need-to-think-first principle. At this point in the plot, I was having such great fun with my font that I really wanted to use it on my iPad, too. I vaguely remembered that Apple had created some backhanded way to add fonts to iOS, so I went hunting. 9to5Mac has a really good article on how to use custom fonts on iPhone and iPad, so I studied up. It is as backhanded as I'd remembered. You have to first install a third-party app onto your iOS device, then you tell the app what font you want to download, 
and the Font app will install a profile under your iOS device to allow the OS to see the font. Profiles are like those things that you get with VPNs. The app you want to use also has to have, uh, or the app where you want to type with this new font has to have support for custom fonts. As janky as all that sounds, you know I had to try it. I tried out a few of these font apps, and while they would let you add fonts to iOS, some were restricted to services such as Google Fonts. Now, don't get me wrong, that's really cool, but I needed one that would allow me to import a custom font. I also stumbled across one that had a, an exorbitant weekly fee. I think it was like $5 a week. Anyway, the 9to5 article suggested an app called iFont, which will allow you to import five fonts for free, and you can point to iCloud or Dropbox to get the font. I followed the clear instructions in iFont, and to my delight, I now have my handwriting font on my iPad. Very, very cool. Now, you might be wondering at this point what other advantages you might get with a subscription fee for Calligrapher. Before explaining, you can buy a cup of Calligrapher for $8 for one month, and you have your font forever after using those advanced features. I mentioned the, the 75 character limit of the free plan, and with the paid plan, you can have 480 characters. That's bananas. Well, unless you're trying to write in Japanese, of course. With the free plan, you can create unlimited fonts, but you can only have one that you're working on concurrently. So you can work on one, get it done, delete it, start another one. If you're sure you're happy with that font, that's going to be okay. But you won't be able to edit that original font. If you get addicted like I am, you'll start noticing, oh, that Y looks a little bit funny, and that ampersand is totally wrong, and keep wanting to edit. So I have a hard picture time picturing when I'm going to be actually done. Calligrapher allows you to create variants of letters as well. I dragged Sandy into my madness for a short time, and in a share screen session, I showed her how to import her own handwriting and start editing it. Her first attempt was to use script handwriting, and it was, I would say, a disaster. The problem with script is that each character, or glyph, needs to know what the following character is going to be in order to know what it should look like. Or maybe it's the next character needs to know what the previous character was. Anyway, for example, if a lowercase o is followed by an i, the i has to know to start at the, its top point, rather than on the baseline. Similarly, if the o is followed by an s, the s must start in midair instead of on the baseline. When I heard about this variant option in Calligrapher, I thought maybe that's how you do script. But they explained that the variants are just sprinkled in randomly. I guess it was naive of me to think that a font could have the embedded intelligence to decide what to look like based on the next character. In any case, if you like the idea of having a lot of random variations to each character, you can have 15 with the paid plan, but only two with the free plan. Now, I'm tempted to buy a month of Calligrapher for one specific feature. The 8 in my font has a spacing issue. It's like it's shoved to the right of the space it takes up. The one I created is as thin as one would expect, but it also has essentially no space on either side of it. You can adjust letter, letter spacing for single characters only with the paid-for plan. There's other advantages of the subscription for Calligrapher, like the ability to have ligatures, but I had to go look up ligatures to see what that even means. I'll leave it to you to investigate the pricing further and to see whether you need it. Then I got to wondering what would happen to my font if I upgraded and then I let the monthly fee expire. When you have a free plan, the data about the font is stored in your browser. They explain that your font info will remain in the browser for some time, but they'll eventually clear the data out of the cache and you will lose your work. Actually, I don't know whether they're the ones doing it. They say that Safari does it as soon as a week, while Firefox and Chrome save it for around two months. So do you feel lucky about losing it? 
I tested this explanation by logging into my calligrapher account with Microsoft Edge, and sure enough, I have no font stored in my logged in account. It's important to note that your downloaded OTF or TTF files that you create with Calligrapher still exist and you can continue to use them forever on your Mac and iPad. But once the browser clears the data, you won't be able to make further edits. If you get really serious about making your own fonts, you could cut the monthly cost in half to $4 per month if you upgrade to a six-month plan. I might be done in six months. Anyway, the bottom line is that I had a lot of fun making my own font and learning how to use Calligrapher. I love having my own handwriting font, and I'm using it everywhere I can just for the sheer fun of it. I need to find an excuse to write a note to my mother-in-law now, because she'll love it. If you want to like, or if you would like to have a font of your handwriting or someone else's handwriting who you admire, and you can get to fill out the template, and you have hours and hours to dedicate to perfecting it, head on over to calligrapher.com and have some fun. Next up, we've got a review by Caleb Fong, also known as Geeko Supremo in the Slack over at podfeet.com slash Slack. Let's hear what he's going to talk about today. Hello, fellow Nusselo Castaways. Originally, I was going to talk about the Wise Watch, but given the black eye that they've taken over security lately, I'll just say that the watch is fine for the price, but buyer beware of their security policy for the company. So what am I going to talk about? The Keychron K6 Wireless Mechanical Keyboard. The problem to be solved. Trademarked. Well, maybe not. The mechanical keyboard becomes something you look at when you want to step up your typing game, or you have fond memories of keyboards from the early days of personal computing, or you don't like the feel of laptop and membrane keyboards. So let's start with the model and specs that I got. Wireless. Bluetooth connection for up to three devices. RGB backlit. It's fancier than I'd normally go for, but it's super pretty and has 15 modes for viewing fun or visual chaos. Gatron Brown Switches. I'll cover these in detail later. 65% layout. This will figure into my recommendation heavily. The wireless aspect of the keyboard is fairly basic, but it's well done and it works basically like it says on the tin. The on-device connection is USB Type-C, so you'll need the proper cables and dongles to connect it directly to the computer. Along the left-hand side of the keyboard is where the USB connector and the physical switches for the different basic modes are. There are two switches, one that swaps between Windows and Mac layout, and the other switches between wired and Bluetooth. The wired Bluetooth switch has a middle position which turns the keyboard off. The RGB backlight is maybe a bit excessive but it's something of a delight. Sure, you can look hella elite, but it does have an actual function. That being that you can see the symbols of the keycaps in many different lighting conditions, much like the backlit keyboards of MacBooks. The fun comes in when you swap out the backlight modes using the dedicated button on the top right-hand corner of the keyboard. The button moves through the colors and the pre-programmed patterns. My favorite is the one where you press a key and it creates a wave along the row of keys. So if I press the T key, it flashes, and then going to the left and to the right is a trail of light that goes along the whole row. This can become chaotic if you're a fast typer, which is also kind of fun to watch. When you look at the keyboard, it's roughly the same size as the keyboard of a 2011 MacBook Pro 13-inch, which also happens to be my main computer. A significant difference, though, is that there is no function row. That's because it's a 65% key layout. 
and you also lose the 10 key input from the right hand side. When I purchased the keyboard, I thought it was exactly what I wanted, and I was mostly correct. But I really missed the function row. There are so many little features of my text editors that are just a little more complicated to get to. There is a way to access the function keys. On the bottom of the keyboard, just to the right of the spacebar, are two extra keys. Instead of the usual Alt and Control, these are the meta function keys, which allow access to the function row and to the special keys like media controls. Using these keys feels a bit like using Emacs with extra cording keystrokes, but it's more intuitive than Emacs. With a little practice, I'm about 95% of my usual speed of a 10 keyless or TKL or 80% layout. If you read the list item above about Gatron and are trying to remember which transformer that is, it's the manufacturing brand of the Switch, not a colloquialism. The resurgence of mechanical keys made it big with the Cherry brand. Pro gamers and programmers raved about them, and many imitators followed. I have found Gatrons to be very nice, and you'll likely not miss the Cherry branding. If you surf the Keychron site, or any of the many forums about mechanical keyboards, you'll usually hear the switches referred to by color. Blue, red, and brown being the most common ones. The colors are indicators of how each of the switches is designed to respond to pressure. The reds are linear. Resistance to pressure increases as you press, which can be a nice tactile feedback for the typist. The browns are more of a curve with a stronger click or thunk as you press all the way down. The blues are the quote-unquote classic and have a stronger click or thunk when the key is pressed all the way down. The blues are also infamous for their noise level, where the browns and reds are much more quiet, although they all still make a noticeable click. Since I have purchased the keyboard back in 2020, a new type of switch has been added to the available options. It's the optical. I have not had a chance to try these, nor do I have any insights about how they feel or sound, although they sound kind of rad. Now this is all well and good, but do I recommend it? Um... Well, the 65% key layout is a much more specific use case than I had originally planned on, so I'm not certain I'd recommend this one, but the 10 keyless, or 80%, should be a very, very viable option for most of you. It's a bit more expensive, but the build quality of these keyboards is top-notch, and you will not be disappointed by the typing experience. Well, thanks so much for that, Caleb. That sounds really cool. I love a clicky keyboard. I don't think I'm allowed to have one, though, on account of, you know, podcasting. I would just be too tempted to type in the middle of a show that I'm recording, and then that would be bad. If you enjoy this week's show, or if you've enjoyed the shows we produce here for a long time, please consider supporting the work we do here. If you're not into recurring costs, I get that. But you could always be like Christoph and go to podfeet.com slash PayPal and do a single donation. Now, Christoph does take it up a notch and he donates once a quarter, but you know what? You do you. You f do what feels right for you. It is not inexpensive to do these shows, so every dollar here and there really, really helps. Thanks again, Christoph, for your quarterly support. You rock. Well, it's that time of the week again. It's time for Security Bits with Bart Boosh Shots. How are you doing today, Bart? 
I am doing good, although I haven't mastered the art of controlling my body temperature. I was freezing, now I'm sweating, I'll be freezing again in a minute. <laughs> yeah. I live that way. You know, Steve, Steve always said, if you ever get hot, hot flashes, how would I know? Because I just, <laughs> I'm always too hot, too hot. Well, we've talked about this with the uh, the temperature controls on the Tesla being on screen is really bad for mm. me because I am constantly up a degree, down a degree, up a degree, down a degree. I just, I'm tapping it all the time. I put it at 20.5 the day the car arrived and I, I don't know where it is. <laughs> I actually don't know where I would find the button. I put it at that number and it seems fine. <laughs> Oh, very good. Well, let's uh, kick into some security stuff here, shall we? We shall. You don't have to worry too much about not distracting me because they're very short show notes. Oh, they really are. Yeah, it's the silly season, right? I keep forgetting it's June because it's such a weird year. Again, we keep having these weird years. Anyway, uh, some feedback and follow up, uh, all in the follow up department. Uh, we talked last time about the DOJ having a new policy on their enforcement of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, or the CFAA. And we both agreed it was a good thing. Um, I think I was a little more skeptical than you, maybe, but again, we both agreed it was a good thing. Um, Brian Krebs weighed in. He also agrees it's a good thing, but I think he makes me seem optimistic. Uh oh. Uh, he's looking at it from the point of view of, okay, so my friends who are security researchers, how is this affecting them? How are they interpreting what just happened? How big of a change is this making to them? R- remind well, everybody hoping- what the change was. So they're saying that they are not going to prosecute people who do security research in good faith without really defining the, where, where, where they draw the line on in good faith. And they didn't change the act in any way. Correct. They just said, just, the, uh, just for now, we don't feel like pursuing those people. Yeah. And so Brian Krebs asked the obvious question, great, so this is supposed to be great for security researchers, so how, how do they feel? How do the people who this law is really target, you know, who are really afraid of this law, how do they feel about it? And their answer was, we're not changing a darn thing. Well, I guess the question would have to be, what were they doing before and what would have they, would have they changed? It's what they're not doing. They are still terrified. They don't, but basically this is But they're still doing the research. No, they're not. They have not been doing the research they wanted to do because of the CFAA, and they're continuing to not do the research they want to do because of the CFAA. It's not that they don't do any research. They're security researchers. They got to be doing something. Yes, but they are constantly treading on broken glass and tiptoeing about and being terrified, and they continue to be treading on broken glass, tiptoeing around, being terrified. But they still do security research, right? But not as much as they they want would to be if doing they could. Their, okay. Yeah. They, okay. They feel hamstrung, and we continue to feel hamstrung because this isn't actually a defense. You can't go into court and say, "But it was good faith," because it's not in the law. Mm. It's only in. So basically, if they charge you, nothing has changed. Right. And so but all you of the can lawyers trust the government. Is, <laughs> well, it's, at the end of the day, the the fix here is to change the law. If the law is bad, saying we won't enforce a bad law is better than enforcing a bad law. But it's not actually the answer. Right, right. Anyway, I, I, was, I was hoping to read it and be all happy and then post it here and be all happy. So I put it first so we get it out of the way. <laughs> so um, in terms of social media, I may have, I should have renamed this the Instagram section. 
Mm. So I don't know how people will feel about this, but it is a thing. Instagram have brought Amber Alerts to 25 countries in one go, which is quite impressive. The biggest hitters are the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and most of Europe and the United Kingdom. Now, do people outside uh, of the United States know what an Amber Alert is or should you tell them? Well, that's an interesting question because Instagram certainly think we do. Um, I do from watching American television. So I can Basically, I can means, explain briefly. It, yeah, it, please do actually, because I'll only mess it up. There was a, a young girl named Amber who was uh, abducted, and this is named after. <laughs> I assume her. it was the color orange. No, no, this this was a uh, a girl, and I don't believe she survived. Uh, and so th- the idea is, if somebody gets ab- abducted, a child gets abducted, and they have any clue of the vehicle and the region in which the person was uh, was abducted everybody, their phones light up. And I mean, it sounds like it's a tornado warning. It is just all hands on deck. Look for a, a black Ford Taurus license plate starting with 3XY and, uh, you know, traveling south on the 405. Confined. Yeah. So, so huh. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, if it happens in Los Angeles, you don't want your all the phones going off in New York. I mean, our phones would be right. going off too often, right? So you want to get it targeted. And it, it doesn't happen very often, but it'll it'll scare the pants off you when it does it's it's quite alarming hmm. which is good that's yeah. what you want it to do okay so I, I assumed amber was like halfway between red but not quite as bad no <laughs> i assumed it was to do with the color orange sorry um yeah i knew there were some there were hyper local alerts from the point of view of catching people's attention with a very specific keep an eye out for x very specific thing so they're coming to a lot of places um including ireland um so I, I will tell you, it is a, uh, I just uh, looked it up on Wikipedia. It is about Amber Renee Hagerman, who was abducted, later found murdered in 1996. But it's also a backronym for America's Missing Broadcast Emergency Response. I, I guess we're just going to keep calling it American, even though it's now in Argentina, yeah, Australia, Belgium, Bulgaria. I think it's, I think it's Kleenex, so. Yeah, fair. Oh, so you just started yeah, to list a bunch more countries. I cut you off there. Yeah, there's 25 of them, and I was in two minds, but I'm going to have a go at reading this out loud, even though I can't read out loud. So, Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Bulgaria, Canada, Ecuador, Greece, Guatemala, Ireland, Jamaica, Korea, Lithuania, Luxembourg, Malaysia, Malta, Mexico, the Netherlands, New Zealand, Romania, South Africa, Taiwan, the sorry, Ukraine, the UK, the United Arab Emirates, and the United States of America. And that was on top of Canada, Australia, New Zealand, uh, this is the rest of it. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, pretty impressive. Yeah. So in so Instagram, anyway, that'll be interesting. Uh, I'm not on Instagram, so I can't tell you what it, what it looks like. But if Steve ever sees one, I'll let you know. Hopefully we see none. I was going to say, I'm rather hopeful that, but of course, realistically speaking, someone in one of those 25 countries will see something. Yeah. Uh, hopefully, effectively. Uh, another piece of work Intel, Intel, Instagram are doing, and again, it's on the positive side of the ledger. They have a thing called sensitive content controls where you can filter what it will show you. And right now, today, that filter only applies to the Explore tab, which is where you go to look at pictures you're not following, right? So Explore is for sort of, I'm bored, show me cool stuff. Okay. Which is very important, obviously, that if you're going to have a place to filter, the first place to filter would be the Great Wild West, right? <laughs> where you don't so know that's where they introduced the feature. But they are now in the process of rolling it out, so it will cover search, reels, hashtag pages, and accounts you might follow. In other words, their suggestions. Hmm. 
as well as your main feed. So if sorry, you as well don't as suggested posts in your main feed. Okay, so if you don't turn on sensitive content controls, you're just going to see porn and murders or <laughs> well you're going to continue to see what you see now right if you haven't configured this setting then nothing changes for you if you have configured the setting it now applies more broadly than it does today oh i see or it okay. will do very shortly okay that's what you meant by okay good well that's good yeah so it's, yeah it is good it's, it's a nice nice improvement there so that's it for the feedback and follow-up section uh, that jumps us into action alerts so no deep users. dives huh hmm didn't really think there's anything yeah, I, I figure you might draw me out on a few things, but there was nothing that I, I sort of felt was mediums, maybe. Okay. Um, Windows users, take note. You need to run a command on your Windows machine to disable your machine's support for a protocol you never use. <laughs> okay. It is the Mac, like, you know. It, this is how iOS works as well. So the, the like when you install an app on iOS and one app can open another app, it's done through custom URL schemes, right? So you could install, say, Instagram, and it might make Instagram colon slash slash available as a URL scheme. So then you could have another app open Instagram by, with an Instagram colon slash slash URL. Um, hmm. I know a lot of my timer apps support these URLs so that you can have a URL to set a timer, oh. which lets you do automation and cool stuff. Okay. So Windows has a bunch of these built in too. And security researchers have noticed and have started to poke. And a bit like what happened with uh, PDFs and stuff, when researchers notice something and find one loose thread, they tend to find lots of loose threads. So the first thread they found was a URL scheme to open up the Microsoft Diagnostic Tool, the MSDT. And so the URL starts ms-msdt colon slash slash, and it's supposed to bring up a diagnostic screen with some stuff ready to go. So the idea is it's a link you could be sent by support to oh, bring you okay. to an appropriate diagnostic. Okay. The thing is it has a remote code execution bug in it. <laughs> so the URL can be used to run arbitrary code on your computer, which is pretty darn catastrophic and is being actively exploited in the wild. So the advice from Microsoft is to disable support for this protocol scheme, which basically means you run regedit command and it pulls it out of your registry. Problem solved. Now, it is patch Tuesday next Tuesday, so I'm rather hopeful that this will be dealt with in that patch Tuesday, but in, you know better safe than sorry, this is what you're supposed to do. This is Microsoft's only official advice at the moment is to disable this URL scheme and they give the commands. So I'm not familiar with, I, I remember a tool called RegEdit on the Mac 100 years ago in Mac OS 7 days, I think. Uh, you, but No, you can't have on the Mac, you mean in Windows. You're remembering your Windows days. No, there was an app called RegEdit. It was before your time. But there's no registry on the Mac. It never has been. That's a purely Windows invention. That's Microsoft's bizarre and interesting... So unless this regedit did something utterly unrelated to it allowed you to uh, edit uh, icons. So like the little dog, the the little cow cow dog or whatever that was that uh, came early on. Those kind of things you could edit those with something called regedit. I'll find it, but I I'm certain of this. Huh. It's not this. Okay, well it's definitely not regedit as in the really popular tool that makes Windows go. Uh, regedit is how you edit the Windows registry. It's been a Blessing and a curse since whatever came after Windows 3.1. Windows 95 is when Regit came into being. Um, yeah, so let's say edit the Windows registry, uh, which is what you need to do here to remove this protocol scheme. So is and it a, is this like a command line thing you have to do? Yes. Or? Okay, so yeah. it's it's hard for regular, for muggles? 
Um, yeah, uh, and I checked the Microsoft page today, and they have no other advice other than running a command to disable the URL scheme. I okay. didn't see anything else on that page that looked even vaguely useful. Um, and they did not say what I was hoping to say. And we released this patch, you know, KB, whatever, fixes it. As of when I opened these show notes six hours ago or so, that was it. That was the only solution for Microsoft, disable the protocol. Huh. So Now, since, like I say, that was the first one discovered. Uh, it's called Folina because it has something to do with the area code appears, the area code for the town of Folina appears somewhere in the exploit. And so the guy was like, oh, I recognize those numbers. They're the area code for the town next door. Therefore, I shall call this vulnerability Folina. Okay. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> fun. Folina, huh? Yeah. Uh, and then it wasn't long after that we had a lot of other people losing their minds over another you know, major vulnerability in the search-ms colon slash slash URL scheme. But this one isn't even vaguely as serious. So this one doesn't do remote code execution. It allows a person to trick your computer into opening a search window, which is pre-filled with the files on a server they control. At which point in time, you would then have to choose to run them. So it could be helpful as part of some sort of social engineering attack where they can somehow trick you into wanting to run something, but they would have a fair bit of homework to do to trick you into running the app for them, which is a very different state of play than remote code execution, which is what Felina provides. So don't double click on stuff that you weren't (laughs) expecting. You know, weird windows pop up. The last thing to do is to double click on one of them. Right, right. well, hopefully yeah, so that's, Tuesday, uh, like you say. Yeah, fingers crossed for the day after tomorrow. And that would be nice if they dealt with it. Uh, so that's our only action alert. Yeah, we really, uh, hope, then, we really hope this is obsolete when you hear it. <laughs> that would be lovely. That would, that would be absolutely lovely if you're listening on Wednesday and the answer is just run Windows Update and it takes care of itself. That would be nice. Be very nice. Uh, in terms of notable news then, really it's, uh, it's mostly Apple news. Um, So one of the big features in Apple's keynote was a demo of Apple's implementation of the Fido passkeys we talked about a few weeks ago. And it looks like Apple have a very nice implementation now in developer beta. I'm guessing public beta, usually public beta is middle of the summer, isn't it? You know, sort of a month or so after the developer beta. Yeah, if they do a public beta, but they have been lately. They have been lately, yeah. So I would expect sort of, you know, July or so, every, everyone who wishes to play in dangerous beta software that could break your machines, <laughs> um, you know, it'll be available. Anyway, it was a nice looking implementation. And what was much more fun, uh, the someone who is in Oscilla Castaway, I'm not sure if it was by email or in the Slack, but someone on the Oscilla Castaway community um, put me on to the fact that Apple did a detailed session as part of WWDC, uh, I think it was called Meet Passkeys or something Equally as fun like that. And it's a half hour session, which goes into way more detail than the two minute demo and the keynote. (laughs) Um, And it's actually a it's very human friendly, which is very pleasing. Really? And uh, you really get the impression that this is a well thought out initial offering, which is fantastic for a first attempt at a feature. You know, it, it's not coming out half-baked. It's coming out like three-quarters baked or more. You know, it, it's, it doesn't have everything, everything. It doesn't have... There's no concept yet of syncing between ecosystems. 
But there is very good syncing within Apple's ecosystem. There's very good syncing within Microsoft's ecosystem based on their announcements and their betas and stuff, or their preview releases, as they call them. Um, And what we also have very well demonstrated and very heavily featured in that video is the ability to do the proximity-based login. So if you have your iPhone with you and your iPhone has a passkey, you can use that passkey on any other device running a passkey aware operating system. So Android, Windows, Mac, iOS, that is within Bluetooth range. So not connected over Bluetooth, just no. it can smell it from there. Yeah, they basically, as part of the protocol, they will do a little sniff out to each other. But there is a button when you try to do a FIDO-based login saying use nearby device. And that's part of the standard protocol. So everyone who implements these pass keys in Windows, Android, etc., they have to do this as part of the standard. And at that point, it will beacon out for anything nearby over Bluetooth. And then you have a secure exchange of the pass keys, etc. Or of the challenges, actually, rather than the pass keys. So you don't share the pass key. You just, uh, oh, I'll answer that challenge on your behalf. There you go. And pass it through. Okay. Well, while, while we're on this subject, can we talk a little mm. bit about, um, there was a discussion in uh, in our Slack, podfeet.com slash Slack, uh, Grumpy, Mike Price brought up the fact that Steve Gibson, as he put it, uh, <laughs> emoji pooped all over pass keys. And what he was concerned about was, and, and I, you briefly touched on this, but I was hoping we could go a little deeper since we have time. Mm-hmm. Um, what Steve was concerned about was that traditionally uh, Apple, for example, has not been very friendly about sharing things with other operating systems. Like supposedly iMessage was going to be everywhere, that kind of thing. So he was concerned that if you had passkeys on your Apple uh, devices, you wouldn't be able to use Windows, so an, an iPhone with Windows. But you went and watched that video and then you started mm-hmm. responding to this. Can you, can you talk to what they said about that? Okay, so first off, this is very different to a standard Apple have invented, right? This is an open standard. So it is, at the end of the day, a passkey is just a bunch of a bunch of hexadecimal characters. So there will be, just like you can get a password out of the keychain, there will be ways of getting at these things and stuff. But even leaving that aside, let us assume that you can't do that and that the passkey is welded into your keychain. Mm-hmm. Even in that worst possible case scenario, which we have absolutely no evidence that that is the final offering, then the protocol is designed to allow you to authenticate on nearby devices without needing to sync the passkey. So that's the Bluetooth thing we were just talking about. That's the Bluetooth thing you're talking about. Mm-hmm. So if you have passkeys on your phone and you're a modern human being whose phone is always with them, then you always have your passkeys at every single computer. It doesn't matter who made the computer or who owns the computer. Which is actually oh, better so than relying meaning on like you could go into a library if you didn't have a computer and you could use, if they had Bluetooth turned on, it would work? Yeah. Oh, yes, exactly. That's because that's very important to be able to use your stuff on a, you know, you're at a conference and you're at a kiosk or something. Like you do need to be able to use your pass keys, not just on your own devices. So they're actually solving a bigger problem than what Steve was worried about. Right, but right. The thing is... We are going to get these other features. So at the moment, everyone is doing betas of various levels of openness within their own platform. And until you have your own ducks in a row, you're not ready to start to have that conversation for how do we get Windows keychain to talk to the Apple keychain or whatever, right? That, that We're not ready for that conversation yet until we have a stable working version on each of the platforms. But something that I'm waiting to hear more on Apple made a big deal about bringing out an actual app for iCloud Keychain on Windows. A while ago. An iCloud Keychain 
yeah, a while like ago, a, yeah. Half a year ago or so, yeah. At least, yeah. Well, like they've had keychain, but they've actually added an app to give you a GUI. So it used to be that it just you had keychain and it worked in Edge, I think it was. But they actually have added an app app so you okay. can see. So keychain access as well as keychain. Okay. If, if that makes sense. So they already have a keychain presence on Windows. They didn't talk about it, but surely at some point in this beta process, their keychain app is going to work with their keychain backend. So passkeys are probably coming to Windows from the Apple ecosystem through Apple's own keychain. Okay. Right? Okay, that would make sense. It would make sense. But, but, but you've also already... so extended to it's a Chromebook now, and you know the conversation will still need to, to happen between the, the, the devices. Will, you're, you're right. I mean, there will still be conversation. But again, we have that Bluetooth protocol that's part of the spec, not part of Apple's doing. That's part of the spec. You can't right. be one of these FIDO passkey implementers. You know, the fact that they're all in the FIDO alliance means that is going to happen, which is amazing. The other thing then that is very much related is... The FIDO standard and the FIDO alliance is not limited to the OS vendors. Other people who are in the business of synchronizing secrets can play too. And one password joined the chorus of people saying, yeah, we've joined the FIDO alliance. We're going to have full support for passkeys. So when you go to sign up to a website with a passkey, you don't have to save it in your keychain. You can save it to your one password vault and have one password manage your passkeys instead of keychain. And then use that on Windows and Android and Mac and wherever you go. Everywhere the 1Password ecosystem is. So if you're in the 1Password ecosystem, you have your 1Password everywhere already because that is how you are currently living. And with a password, you can't just beam it through Bluetooth, right? Your passwords you have to actually sync. So you're already in a world where 1Password has your back wherever you need to be. So if you're a 1Password user, this takes care of itself because 1Password are getting into the passkeys game. Okay. Now, why would you... I thought part of the joy of this would be not having to have a password manager. Why would you want to use one password instead of using a keychain? Uh, well, for me, one password does so much more than passwords. I think I joked to you that one password is like the phone app on my phone. Or at least it will be. So one password has my bank details. One password has my software details. One password has my private keys. One password has my certificates for things. One password has basically all of my secrets. And I'm not going to stop using one password just because the secrets change. Well, I, did, I didn't say I was going to stop using one password. I'm not arguing that. I don't want to okay. get, get, get you defensive on that. Then I I'm, don't I'm understand saying, your question. So my question is, if it, it, to me, the, the dream, jump forward to a, a new future. Mm-hmm. Let's say 1Password was just introduced and it can handle your software license keys and your vaccine card and all that kind of stuff that you like and secure notes about the, the passcode to your, to your safe. You've got it. And they say they're going to give you all this stuff. That would be great. But you're right. already living in this passwordless future where mm-hmm. Keychain has just been taking care of it for you. What would motivate you to want to put it into 1Password? Because you're not living entirely in Keychain's universe. So for people who are cross-platform, yes. But if you are, a, if you are a, a you know a true you know someone who knows the truth and the light and the way, uh, and you only use Apple devices, I don't know that that would be an advantage. That to me would be a disadvantage. Now I'm I'm thinking about it, and I don't have to think about it if it just goes into keychain. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yes. It, it, basically, what I'm saying is, for people who are stressing about this, there already is a solution. Even before Microsoft and Apple and Google talk to each other, there's already a solution. Okay. And they're like, we're at phase, we're not even at version one of this, and already we have a solution. 
I, it's only I thought LastPass was in it too. They might be. They just haven't crossed my radar right now at the moment. But I, I would not swear. To, I don't know for sure if they are or they aren't. Uh, I don't know if they're in the FIDO alliance. I wonder if the FIDO alliance. Well, six days ago, they posted LastPass is the first password manager committed to a FIDO compliant passwordless future. Does that mean they actually joined the FIDO alliance? Or Let's is see. that just the PR saying, me too, me too? Well, no, they're now. saying they were first, Bart. They were the first. Um, global leader in, in zero knowledge. All sites stored in it. First password manager with this offering. LastPass is in a unique position to bring both in. Okay, marketing, marketing, marketing. <laughs> Deeply committed to standards-based FIDO-supported passwordless future. Has held a seat on the FIDO's board of directors Ooh. since September 2020 to help drive the, the standardized and open approach to passwordless. Yeah, they can crow about that. Yeah, that. I don't know about the first one to commit to a FIDO-supported passwordless future, but we'll give them that. So... Uh, yeah. So that gives us one password and last pass, whether our devices uh, are ready for it from uh, the operating system. Well, you know, another thing yeah. might happen. You might end up with somebody on an older uh, machine mm. before this is supported or, I don't know, heck, maybe they're running an outdated version of the operating system. They can't be yeah. updated. They could still use something like LastPass or 1Password, right? Yeah, and it's not clear to me how far back... Like, there's no reason you couldn't backport this to older versions, but there's also no reason to assume they will get backported. So we don't really know... I mean, maybe it'll take two years to be backported, maybe it'll never be backported, but either way, we're, like you say, we already have these amazing cross-platform solutions. So if you're someone who's entirely in the Apple ecosystem, great. If you're Apple and Windows, I think the keychain implementation on Windows will probably have your back when this thing comes out of beta. So I think at that stage, you're still good. And if you're Android to Apple, I think 1Password, LastPass. So even now, we, we already know we'll be grand and we're only going to learn more. Like this is things are only going to get better from here in terms of FIDO support. That's great. That's great. Uh, back on the iCloud keychain on, on Windows, uh, it was more than a year ago. It was May 29th, 2021, when the, the full iCloud keychain app came to Windows. Wow. So time, time has gone all wibbly-wobbly. <laughs> it certainly has. So with this much momentum from, the, uh, from Google and Microsoft and Apple and LastPass and 1Password between those, I, I hope that the, uh, the the website owners are gearing up. And the other thing, actually, there's the other thing that I uh, that I, I had meant to mention from the session. It's not just websites. It's also the standard is designed for two problems: apps and websites. Mm. You have to sign into all sorts of apps. Right, right. right. So, and Apple spent a good chunk of their. 30-minute presentation showing how easy it is for developers to stick support into their apps. Like, and it really is. Like, even I could just see that, okay, right, so here's here's your three lines of code for signing with Apple. You copy and paste those, and you change one or two lines to basically change the name of the API you're calling, and now your app supports both. Oh, It, it really was that simple. Oh, nice, nice. So, um... Yeah, this feels like it feels like it's got a lot more momentum than I would have thought. You know, I thought, okay, this is going to be for nerds to know about, but it just feels like a lot of dominoes falling quickly. It does. And watching that presentation, it feels really polished. I I almost have a feeling maybe Apple have been eating their own dog food on this for a while. And there's been internal betas that have been running and they've been using it because it felt very polished. Interesting. Huh. So, 
And it was also a very well presented presentation. Extreme, like it was a developer presentation. But I think any Nocilla Castaway would get something out of watching it. I mean, I'm not saying you'll you'll be hanging on every code snippet, but you will understand how straightforward it is, and they really explain why it's better in a very human friendly way because they assume. They assume that you're happy enough to know what Swift is and what an API is, but they don't assume the listener of the talk knows anything about security. Mm. So they pitch the security stuff at the base, which is perfect. So oh, that's good. You know, as I say, I really enjoyed the presentation. It was very well done. Um, Would yeah, um, just- if if we just did a search for passkeys, Apple WWDC, we might find it. Uh, it's in the show notes, linked. Oh, it is. <laughs> which, which is much easier. That, uh, I, I was, I was looking forward to app, put it in there. Okay. The developer app could do a better search. Because yeah. Apple did five, one, you know, five summaries, a summary for day one, a summary for day two, etc. And I searched for WWDC 2022 daily. And I found Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And it refused <laughs> to look back more than three days. Ugh. So I had to go to iMore, who linked to them all, and then click on the iMore links to get to the stuff in Apple's developer app. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> it's ridiculous. But anyway, the, the talk is there. The talk is good. Uh, but there was actually more security stuff that Apple talked about in the keynote, not just the pass keys. Um, so there's also a very interesting thing that Apple are calling rapid security response. So... When there's something really badly wrong with your operating system, usually it's actually just like five lines of code that need to be fixed or something. It's usually a microscopic little change. So waiting until they give you a giant big update, which has all of the possibilities of something terrible going wrong, they're going to have a feature where they can just do a hot a hot fix basically immediately. And it won't require a reboot except in rare situations. Uh, they say no reboot required, and then there's an asterisk that says there may be a reboot sometime. Okay. Um, but the idea is that they can push v- small but important security fixes to you without having to wait for the daily or weekly security update check and without having to do a full security update for you. Will you still have a button to push to say, I agree to do it, do you think? No, there will be a tick box that says, Basically, there's a tick in the settings for automatic security updates. There will be a tick box for whether or not you want those. So you know the way now you can choose download only, download or install. Well, there's going to be another tick box under there to say whether or not to do these hot fixes. Oh, okay, okay, uh, but y- you won't be rebooting, so they'll just silently happen. Okay, that's good. Yeah. It, no, it is. It's very good. And the great thing is that you don't have to do a... Because it's not a full update, you don't have that normal risk of, okay, I'm doing a big change here. Things can go wrong, as we <laughs> discovered in our Slack. You know, so like, uh, Podfit.com forward slash Slack. Um, was it in Slack or was it an email? Uh, well, it started in an email and then it moved over to Slack. It was... Uh, you were helping me pronounce a gentleman's last name. L-E-D-H-A-M, I think. Ledum? Ledum would be my guess. Ledum? But, or Ledum. Ledum, Ledum or Ledum, depending on... Yeah, this gentleman world. updated uh, uh, Big Sur to the latest release. He said, I stayed patched and I stayed secure. And all, all of a sudden he had a problem uh, downloading PDFs from email, attachments from email. He didn't have the correct permissions. And, and they, they, Apple fixed it uh, in an update. But uh, you had an explanation of what that was? Yeah, so... Th- 
a sandboxed app has to be given explicit permission to open every file it opens. And when you double click, when you, the human being, double click to open a file, that is you telling the operating system, give this app permission. So you're basically saying, ask Preview to open this file and give it permission. Hmm. And unless there's a bug, those two actions are supposed to happen as a unit. Okay. I am asking you to open this file and thereby giving you permission to do so. But there was a bug when you opened a file from the mail app. If the app was already running and you opened the attachment, the request saying, please open this file arrived in preview and the permission to make that possible did not arrive. Didn't arrive at all. Ever, which is why it Uh wasn't that you didn't have permission. It's that preview didn't have permission because preview is sandboxed. Okay, okay. It's a silly bug because the act of opening should grant implicit permission. But that is, under the hood, there is a hole being punched in the sandbox, which is an application firewall, is a proper name for sandbox. Mm -hmm. And so the act of opening a file punches a pinhole for exactly that one file into the sandbox, only, I don't know, they blunted the needle or something. The pinhole wasn't being punched. (laughs) Um, And so Apple fixed it fairly promptly. And it is an example of something that is very true, right? Every time you patchy, patchy, patch, patch, there is a non-zero chance of something going wrong. And so... It is tempting to say, aha, therefore, I should not patch. But that leaves out the security principle we talked about on uh, Chit Chat Across the Pond recently. There is a danger of not acting as well as a danger of acting. So the question isn't, is patching zero risk? The question is, the small risk from patching, is it less than the massive risk of not patching? And the answer is absolutely, positively, yes. It is better to take a small risk and patch than a big risk by not patching. Yeah, if you look back over, say, the last decade you've been using a, a, a Mac or an iPhone, would you, would you say that you had big problems many, many times? Me? Or no. highly infrequently? <laughs> I'm trying to remember the last time I got bitten by an update. It must have happened, right? By the laws of probability, it must have happened. But it right. mustn't have been catastrophic enough to have traumatized me long enough to remember. <laughs> I found I found his name. It was Steve uh, Laddams, L-A-D-H-A-M-S. Yeah, Laddams would be how I would say it, assuming it was British, because basically, if you have trouble getting your mouth around it, you're saying it wrong. So if you're saying Gloucestershire, putting too many syllables in there, it's Gloucestershire. <laughs> Just run them together and you're right. <laughs> Which is why it. if you get the, the, the first British audiobook of... The Harry Potter series was read by Stephen Fry before there were movies. And they pronounced the name of the school in the correct British way, which is Hogwarts. But the movies came out and made it Hogwarts. And all the other audiobooks, even the British ones, switched from Hogwarts to Hogwarts. So it's an imaginary is, place. How can you know how to pronounce it? Because Wirt is a really common... Those kind of place names are very... That is a very British name. Like okay. Hogwarts is a very, very British name. Okay. Um, yeah, this their, just their in. Place names are like that. Anyway, go on. This just in for uh, people who've been yelling at their uh, devices Uh-oh. at me talking about. No, when I was talking about RegEdit on the Mac, I uh, tweeted out the question: Do I remember this correctly? Wasn't there something like that? And uh, Nocella Castaway Nick came up with the answer. It was called ResEdit, not RegEdit. ResEdit, ResEdit. I remember. Yeah. No, I don't remember using. I remember people talking about it. 
Okay, but that's why I've, I've been searching furiously for it, going, I know I'm right about this one. doesn't help if you search for regedit, because all you get is people saying, is there a regedit for the Mac like there is on Windows? <laughs> Thankfully, no, because there's no registry. Thank goodness. We have plist files, and they're more friendly than that monolithic mess that is the registry. Mm-hmm. Not perfect, but they're less imperfect. <laughs> which I'll take. Uh, okay, so rapid response is the first cool new security feature, which is good. Uh, another cool new security feature, which I hope to never need, but I am delighted it will exist, and I am going to know about it in the hope I never have to tell anyone about it. Apple have added a feature called Safety Check. It is de- designed to be used by someone in a crisis where they are at risk of abuse from someone in an intimate relationship with them. Mm. So you are running away from an abusive partner or something like that, right? That point in time where you leave is a crisis moment and you are probably getting help from someone. And it's very, very important that you get yourself to a safe place physically and technologically. And so safety check is like a one screen, push these buttons to do these things. Here's everyone you're sharing with, revoke everything. And now you can reinstate the sharing you want. Reset your entire authentication mechanism and now re-enable on the devices you want. And so it helps you to do that cold kerchop, which is the digital equivalent of packing your suitcase, getting in the car and being gone. I hope it changes uh, iCloud Keychain. <laughs> yes, like it, it, it basically... If they, to take out your pass keys, I mean. Uh, well, it shouldn't, I'm not, I'm not sure that's necessarily, anyway, the point being all of the things you're supposed to do to get so like if you shared a whole bunch of stuff, like your location and all that kind of stuff, you will chop it all off. If they have your okay. iCloud password, it will dis- it will disconnect it on all devices, give you set up a new iCloud password and every logged in device will be logged out, which means you will have to re-log in on your actual devices, but that is literally not a problem. Right, right. Wow. So th- th- this is, and Apple have worked with appropriate charities and stuff to get this right. And this is a really big deal. It's such an amazing utility to have Yeah, you know, when, when iOS 16 releases. This, unlike some of their other attempts at doing the right thing, I have not heard that they did this wrong. I'm hearing applause in how they did it. Yeah, it's yeah. good. I hope I never hey. know anybody who needs it too. Ditto, but I'm delighted to know it, that it will soon exist. And I will definitely keep a mental note of it because if I'm ever at, if, if I ever need to know, gosh darn it, I'm going to need to know. Right, right. Uh, much less dramatic, but equally cool. I th- Well, useful too. Uh, if you delete a photo or hide a photo, you are going to have to biometrically authenticate to see that photo. So if you hand someone your phone, they can't just go look in your deleted photos. Right now they can, if they choose to. But with iOS 16, they will have to authenticate to see your deleted or hidden photos. Wait a minute. So if I if I have my phone unlocked mm-hmm. uh, and I leave it on a table, you can look at my regular photos, but you can't look at my deleted. You wouldn't be able to look at my deleted photos or hidden Correct. photos. Oh, interesting. Correct. Huh. And handing someone your phone to look at photos is an extremely common thing to do. Sure. Hmm. And we forget that when we delete a photo, it stays around in case we change our mind. So unless you know about right, there's a thirty photos, day countdown. I believe so. I mean, yeah. I, I I don't even know. 
Uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't I think, think it about is. it, right? None of us think about it. So this is actually a very sensible feature because someone who does know about it and wants to abuse it, this is a great way to lock it down. So I thought, oh, clever. Well done. Uh, and then the last thing is one that a lot of people are putting down in the finally category. Face ID will work when your phone is sideways. <laughs> or your iPad, which is way... Actually, well, no, on your iPad, it always works sideways at the moment. Yes, it does. It does. No, it does. It, does it definitely sideways. does. Yeah. Yeah, because my keyboard case would be useless if it didn't. Just <laughs> mentally thinking there. No, it definitely does. But yeah, the iPhone will also work sideways, which is very useful for people with gaming controllers to clip on the side and stuff like that. Right. I, I find that so irritating when you run into something that doesn't work in uh, in landscape yeah, mode. Especially no, with the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, you don't really Gosh. hold it in, in portrait mode very often, I don't think. No. Why is the camera still there? Why <laughs> is the camera still there? It makes no sense. Anyway, so there were just some nice little security extras apart from passkeys, which is obviously the big deal. Nice. Um, and the, the only other thing I have then is just something interesting from Sophos. So their Naked Security blog I love because it explains security topics for human beings and they have great authors like Paul Duncan. Uh, but they are, of course, a major security research company, right? Sophos do security. That is their actual business. They don't just write blog posts. That's a side service. Um, and one of the things they offer as a service to their customers is they will investigate breaches. So when something terrible happens, if you're a Sophos corporate customer, you can have Sophos come in and clean up. That means they get to see what happens for reals. Like, what in the real world is actually getting actual businesses into actual trouble? Oh. And they like to do reports on these kind of things. So they've just released the 2021 report on how attackers actually got in. Oh. And the good news is, it's generally speaking, unpatched software and operating systems. Not, not, we human, not, the, not the uh, bag of water? Uh, less, just not patching stuff is actually more of a problem in the real world than the ugly bags of mostly water. The squishy organic bit is is still involved, but um, wow. plain old not patching stuff is a bigger problem. So that seems solvable. That's very solvable, which is fantastic. So one of the things we talked about in the recent security philosophy discussion is the inverted pyramid of pain. The easier things to do tend to have the biggest effect. This is what that means, right? Having a patch management process is easy, but very effective. So if you're not yet patchy, patchy, patch patching, do. You say easy, but having been on the other side of the, the equation when our customers would literally refuse to allow us to uh, patch systems because they refuse to have the downtime. There is a change in the power balance now you just say to people and if we don't do this everything will be destroyed by ransomware and the problems evaporate because it's no longer hypothetical ireland the life of the irish sysadmin has been made so much easier by the fact that our health system was destroyed by ransomware in the middle of a pandemic (laughs) so they believe you now right they absolutely positively the magic keys to the kingdom in the security world in ireland are remember the hse (laughs) <laughs> do you feel lucky yeah right and the managers suddenly go oh god I, I wouldn't want to win the receiving end of that i yeah. should try to explain that to the ceo oh <gasps> okay no i guess he can reboot the servers automatically at two in the morning i guess that's not the giant big catastrophe i thought it was <laughs> yeah i i like to think that uh my viewpoint is 
based on very, very, well, it is based on very, very old information because it's been, you know, more than a decade since I had to worry about this. But uh, I still have a feeling there's, in the world I used to live in, that it's still an uphill battle. It's always going to be slightly uphill, but it is much less of a hill than it was five years ago. And to, I notice it being less than a hill than it was one year ago. Okay. Well, but why would why would this be the, the number one problem then? to this day, if it's that easy. Well, because just because something's easy doesn't mean it's done. I know. So why isn't it done? <laughs> Is, that, I want to go the to next reminded, People need to be reminded to do the easy stuff. Yeah. I We're just, human. You got to keep, it's, you got to keep peeling back though. If you, if you depend on the squishy organic, organic bit to remember to do something, or to be uh, rigorous okay, a about doing something. Process, right, but a patching process is like a backup process. If it depends on the squishy organic bit, you've done it wrong. You need to go back to the drawing board and make a process. Because the squishy organic bit shouldn't... Like, like you want your backups, right? Why do we both love backblaze? When's the last time you managed your backups? <laughs> I think when it told me, hey, you haven't plugged this machine in in three weeks. And it was like, oh, yeah, I forgot to delete that machine I that, that I sold. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, right? So that is an example of a backup process that works. And your patching process needs to be the same. I just, if if I were in charge these days, I'd be asking the why questions a bunch, a whole lot, the five whys. Oh, you yeah. know, why aren't we patching? We don't have a patch process. Why don't we have a patch process? Well, because Bob quit. Well, why did Bob quit? Well, because you don't pay us enough. Well, wait a minute. Oh, Oops, ah. you know? <laughs> we don't have a CISO, whatever it is, you know, yeah. you got, you got to get back to the root cause. The root cause isn't that people are just stupid or lazy. I oh, hate no. it when that's the answer, because there, there are root causes there, but you need to know those before you can actually fix this problem, even though, like you say, it's easy. Yeah, but I mean, and the reason I say this is good news is because getting a patch process that works compared to defending from zero days that you don't know about. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> yeah. One yeah. of those is definitely much easier than the other. And so if the result of this report had been nothing you can conceivably do within your current budget could help you, that would be horrific. <laughs> it's like the only way to protect yourself is to spend a million a year. I would hate to read that report, but the report says, no, no, you can all make yourselves a lot safer by just being good at patching. Okay, the just has some hidden stings in the tail. Mm -hmm. It involves process, it involves work, it involves humans. But it's darn doable. Right. Right. You, you can make a project, assemble a team of three or four people, give them a small budget and achieve, get us a patch process. That is an achievable project with measurable results. You can do that. And right. an improvement plan year over year. <laughs> yeah, you can have PKIs, you can measure, repeat, Right, that is doable. We have the processes to do that. It's a matter of someone deciding that, as an organization, we commit the needed, not so massive resources. It's you know, it's a solvable problem, which is very pleasing compared to you're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so it's you know, yes, like I say, just is an interesting word. It is also by the, my favorite thing to say is that just is a four letter word. <laughs> right? Why don't you just? <laughs> well, yeah. Oh, if I if I had a if I had a euro for every time I get asked that, and it's usually <laughs> something like, "Oh, I say, yeah, yeah, we need to publish this database in some sort of usable way. Why don't we just put it on the web? Oh, <laughs> we'll just put it on the web, shall we? 
Anyway, that's uh, oh, such a bugbear of mine, just. Anyway, that is actually all I got, apart from the fact that we are going to cleanse some palettes. So, I really loved your guest appearance on Bodhi's show recently enough, where Bodhi was having like, the a party. podcast. Which, yes, yes, exactly. So the Kilowatt Podcast with Buddy Graham over at 981 Digital? 918 Digital. 918. I knew there were numbers in there. I even had the right ones. Actually, don't try to go to his website. His website doesn't work. It's just... uh, Kilowatt Podcast. Look for the Kilowatt Podcast in your podcatcher of choice. Yes, or a recent episode of the Silicast. I'm sure Alison's linked with loads. But anyway, Alison was a guest, and so was one of the guys from the SMR Podcast. Chris Ashley. Chris. I should have checked that first. Because... Chris got himself an extremely shiny new toy, like an extremely shiny new toy that is very, very, very coveted. He got himself an F-150 Lightning. And even us, you know, silly, lefty, dumb Europeans on the wrong side of the pond, we understand that the quintessential American vehicle is the F-150. That is not just a truck. That is like the truck. That it's, is it's more like than that. I believe it. I believe it's the best-selling car in America. Best, I believe best-selling, it's the best-selling single model. Period. I don't believe there is a model of car anywhere on planet Earth that outsells the F one fifty for forty five years. Oh no, forty five years. It's been the best-selling uh, single model truck, and it's been the best-selling vehicle for forty years. That does not surprise me at all. It is an absolute icon. Think of a truck, you will draw an F-150, right? If I just say to a child, draw a truck, that is what they will draw. (laughs) And Ford have made it into an EV, but it's not a compromise. Like Ford aren't saying, this is a good F-150. It's electric, so it's okay that it's, you know, poorer in this way. No, Ford are saying, this is the best F-150 we've ever made. And by the way, it happens to be electric. And they actually have the, like, they've delivered the product to back up that marketing. And that is just a game changer because you're not trying to convince people to sacrifice their things for the environment. You're telling people, buy this amazing truck and by the way, you're going to help save the planet. That's an easy sell, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, it, it delights me so much that they, that they did this. I'm not a Ford owner. I'm not a truck owner. There aren't a lot of trucks around here in, in California That's or where I live in the non-rural part of California. I mean, you see them, but it's not like, the main vehicle you would see. Just imagine how big your garage would have to be for two (laughs) F-150s. Right, right. But the fact that it's such a, a, it sells so well in the United States is that if everybody who drove a Ford F-150 was suddenly driving an electric vehicle, that would be a big percentage of our emissions, I think, at least our vehicle emissions. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So I'm excited that they did this. But you wanted to talk about how fun this episode was. Yeah. Well, no, you haven't even described the episode you're about to describe. Yeah, so the car, so there's three podcasts involved here. So literally, Chris was about to record with, um, ah, why does my with brain the other go two blanket? guys? No, no, no. It's, oh, with um, Tom Merritt. With Tom Merritt, right? On, I presume it was DTNS they were yes. about to go on to. And they were doing show prep for DTNS when an email popped in to say, your truck's ready to be collected. And Chris was like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. So they had great fun on that show. And then you guys did your guest appearance on each other's shows, I guess. That was cross-posted, that episode. Between Kilowatt and uh, Chit Chat Across the Pond. 
Yeah, and so you guys talked about, like, the brand new truck, right? Chris, like, had it, like, less than a day when you guys recorded, and it was great fun to listen to. There's an an intermediate one. Uh, He didn't actually talk about it on DTNS. He recorded what he called a solo duo episode of the SMR podcast where he had Tom Merritt on his show. That, that also was, happened. That, that was true. in between. And then, now the one you wanted to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so they finally had a normal SMR podcast, and it's now been a week since the truck arrived. So they got to talk about the truck with a real experience of a week. And the whole way through the episode, it was just fun. Like, <laughs> they, it was just a joy to listen to. So, he everywhere he went with that truck, ordinary human beings were just stopping him in the street going, oh my God, is that the electric F-150? And they wanted to know more and they were excited about it and they they were almost more excited about his trucks than he was and he was pretty darn excited. (laughs) It was just so, it was, I listened to it on the bike. It's a fairly long episode. I smiled every minute of the episode. I could tell all three of them were smiling every minute of the episode. It was just fun. I don't even like trucks. (laughs) I I think I want one of these. I don't really, but I kind of do. I'd kind of like one for the weekend, maybe. I, I think I might have fun in one for a weekend. Well, right, it's just right. so nice. It was so pleasing. I'm so, so glad to, yeah. to hear that. I haven't actually heard this episode since I can't exercise. I'm not, I've lost my <laughs> podcasting listening time. So I'll have to figure out some activity for that to listen to it. But uh, I know Rod Simmons was being driven crazy by the fact that he was not in town the day the truck arrived. And so he missed all the day one excitement, but now I, I'm really excited to hear what he thinks about it because he's got to have lost his mind about it. He must love it. Yeah. And they had a very fun conversation as well, actually. So when you bought your Tesla, they were probably still new enough that people would stop you to talk about your Tesla. Right, right. And when I got mine, it was literally the first Model 3s in the country. I had one of them. Mm. So... The first boatload, and I don't think there were many, one of those came to me, like the day after the ship landed in Dublin. So I still got a lot of interest in the Model 3, not because no one in Ireland had seen a Tesla, but because no one had seen a Model 3. Steve got it with the Model Y too, uh, also because the Model Y had just come out. He had one of the first ones of those. And obviously with the F-150 now, Chris is getting a lot of it, but they've all said on the podcast, enjoy this because this is going to be so normal in a year or two that no one is going to care. When we're getting to the stage where F-150s are electric, it means that all of our cars are just going to be electric and no one is going to bat an eyelid and won't that be brilliant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You really hope for that. Yeah, Model 3s are a dime a dozen around here, at least. Uh, The Model Y is still pretty rare. But the the I used to count how many of them were nearby. There's Mm -hmm. now so many of them I've lost count. There's at least three black ones, at least three white ones, another blue one. I'm very cranky that I don't have the only blue one anymore. And a red (laughs) one that looks just like yours. (laughs) Very good. Well, uh, Chris also got contacted by Ford. I hope he talks about that on the show. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Well, I'm going to end up mixing up what I heard on which show. Okay. It it has to be on the newest one, but I mean, I don't need to, we don't need to spoil it. I just, he was contacted by Ford and they're, uh, they're actually going to get him an engineer on to, to come on to the SMR podcast. Oh, no, he didn't mention that. That actually, oh, okay. I'm going to have to tune into that episode, too. Yeah. I'm definitely going to have to tune into that episode. Yeah, that'll be real fun. Yeah, they, maybe they recorded this before uh, he got that call, because that's that's been a big deal. 
Well, I love that you love those guys and uh, uh, having uh, SMR podcast be part of the circle of love with uh, Bodie's show with Kilowatt podcast and DTNS and and uh, the Nocilla cast and chit chat across the pond. It's a big circle of love. Uh, yeah, exactly. And I really like the, it is still a podcasting community, which is so pleasing that it still is a community. It makes me right. very happy. Right. And and then we can bring in Let's Talk Apple and Let's Talk Photography with Bart. It's all a big, happy family. It is. No, it's, it's really good fun. And I, so far, everyone I've met through podcasting has been amazing people. Yeah. Which is so nice. Very fun. Well, we managed yeah. to make 200 words and do uh, 55 minutes, Bart. <laughs> which is perfect, because my dessert is one minute from now, my dessert will be ready. Uh, ro- roasted rhubarb with apple with um, maple syrup and sumac. Oh my gosh. All right. Well, Bart loses interest right when that bell goes off. So we better stop Pretty recording. Much. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Oh yes. I'm supposed to tell people to remember to stay patched, even if there's a teeny tiny risk. So you stay secure, which is way, way safer. So stay patched. So you stay secure. Well, that is going to wind us up for this week. Next week, we will be recording from uh, our son Kyle's house. We're going out to see he and his wife and our grandchildren who have moved away to Texas on us. And this is our first visit out there. So the acoustics will be different. The mic will be different, but we're still going to have a great show. Did you know you can email me any old time you want? Allison at podfee.com, and I will probably even answer you. If you have a question or a suggestion for the show, send it on over. Maybe you want to do a review. You know I love those. Thank you so much to Caleb for doing exactly that. You can also follow me on Twitter at Podfeet. And if you want to join in the fun of the conversation, you can join our Slack community. I've mentioned it about 300 times this week at podfeet.com slash Slack. And you can talk to not just me, but all of the other lovely Nocilla castaways. Remember, everything good starts with podfeed.com. If you can do a weekly donation, that would be fantastic. You can support the show by doing that at podfeed.com slash Patreon, or you can be like Kristoff and use a one-time donation at podfeed.com slash PayPal. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show, head on over to podfeed.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.